Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Hello, this is Sarah Merrick with the Church Times Books podcast. And I'm in conversation today with Susan Gray, and we're going to be talking about the book we've chosen for this month's book club title. And the book is The Second Sleep by Robert Harris, who is well known for his historical thrillers. And it's fair to say when you start reading this book, you think the book is just that. In fact, I'm going to read the opening paragraph. Late on the afternoon of Tuesday, the 9th of April, in the year of our risen Lord, 1468, a solitary traveller was to be observed picking his way on horseback across the wild moorland of that ancient region of southwestern England known since Saxon times as Wessex. If this young man's expression was troubled, we may grant he had good cause. More than an hour had elapsed since he had last seen a living soul. Soon it would be dusk, and if he was caught out of doors after curfew, he risked a night in jail." But we soon find that we're not quite where we think we are. Susan, could you start, please, by just telling us something about the book's premise and the beginnings of the plot? We're going to try and avoid spoilers, but could you try and set the scene for us, please? Okay. well, as you say, Sarah, it looks like we're in the late medieval period. But from quite early on, we are seeded with clues that this is a if these are medieval times, they're very strange times. There's a parakeet. There's a church that has stood for over a thousand years and that's at the beginning. And then as we go through, we realise that we're not we're not in the past. We're in a future that very much resembles it. And the time period, I, I was actually a bit confused by this, but actually because there's a sort of complicated, we won't, don't need to go into details, there's a complicated reason why the dates have been reorganised. But we're about 800 years in, in the yeah. future of our times, aren't we? Um, so it's not exactly a historical thriller. It's a bit more like, um, I think we both have observed, it's quite like his very famous book, um, Fatherland. Um, which was set in a counterfactual Germany where Hitler had won the Second World War. I'm told this particular genre of novel is is known as a ruined earth novel. I don't know if you've come across that phrase before. But by the time you've read the first 30 pages, you know something about where we are. And in the book, it refers back to what we might think of as our current time. We're known as, as the ancients. And it becomes clear, part of the premise is that people have moved away from God um, to an over-reliance on science. And and now in the time that this book is set, the, the world has reverted to a time where the church holds sway again. And I think that's quite interesting, isn't it? It's quite an unusual approach. Yes, it is. It, it, yes, it, it, it is a theocracy. Um, and the church is painted as this very authoritarian, brutal, um, anti-knowledge, anti-progress, anti-science. They even yes, they talk about the ancients as having this sort of cult of scientism, which is what led to their, their hubris and their downfall. And one of the, um, perhaps one of the curiosities of it is, was well, how did the church have such a massive hold on people without technology if it took, and it would have, um, you know, over a day to go 30 miles, what, you know, how did the church enforce its rule? 
because we only actually we only actually see a, this particular corner of England, this sort of remote part of the southwest. Um, so everything everything else is sort of left as a as a bit of a void. There are lots of unanswered questions, aren't there? And and again, without saying too much, we find out some things during the course of the novel, but there's an awful lot we don't, which I have to say I quite like. You know, I, I don't, you know, I like as a reader um having questions left there. And I mean, there are kind of some quite sort of amusing kind of nods to our current age, aren't there? There's the the um he the main character at one point discovers this palm-sized object bearing the ultimate symbol of the ancients hubris and blasphemy which is an apple with a bite taken out of it and of course it doesn't take long you know for any of us as readers now to recognize that um that there are sort of you know bits of our age are left sort of littering the place around and another sort of key fact is that we never again i don't think this will spoil it but it's never entirely clear what has caused the apocalypse? There's been an apocalypse, which we think is in 2025, but we don't know quite what it was, apart from that it was, you know, as you've mentioned, hubris, and it was to do with scientism. Do you think it matters that we don't know quite what went wrong? Does that does that spoil it as a reader for you? Um, no, I think because we can kind of survey all the options, because at some points in the novel... It's tilting towards climate disaster because we hear about people, you know, they've got wine and local tea, which makes you think things have got a bit hotter. Oh, and of course, there's continuous rain as well. So, you know, has this corner of England moved to a sort of a sort of tropical yeah. weather system? Um, and then on the other hand, it nods towards was it a technological breakdown, which in a way feels more pertinent because it does reflect on our complete reliance on clicking buttons, you know, tapping with our card. Um, and how would we manage if these things couldn't happen? I mean, we, we, we all, well, maybe I should speak for myself, we all use services every day that we don't really understand how they work. Yes, and there's this very obvious point about just not knowing anymore how to how to grow food. Um, and I wonder, I mean, you have met and interviewed Robert Harris. Do you think these are, are kind of very personal anxieties or I mean, you may not know the answer to that? Or do you think it's just a sort of interesting exploration of our modern age and, and our anxieties? Um, I think this one is personal. I mean, he is incredibly clever and incredibly learned. And I think this book was written about, was it 2019, 2020? And it was that time when we'd all had enough of experts and there was a, you know, sort of the beginnings of a sort of, you know, cultural, cultural backlash against elites and liberals and all those sort of things. And I think he might be putting a flag up saying, well, you know, if you want to go down this road, yeah. here's, here's where you're going to get to. So I think it does feel personal. I'm quite curious about his painting of the church as this sort of, awful institution because uh you know as is reasonable reasonably well known I don't, I don't think he has a faith that he has articulated but he does live in a rectory and he does seem fascinated by the church he's written conclave the act of oblivion obviously was about religion so he does seem to have this fascination with religion but i i yes i did feel i did feel the church got a raw deal in this one Yes. Do you think there's anything positive about the church in this new era? Um, that, does he paint anything positive? Um, people go to church. Yep. So that's, um, 
it is I guess that's positive they seem they seem to they seem to know the mass and um oh and he's also chosen these incredibly dirge like miserable hymns yeah yes. um, so there is the sort of church is is repositioned as very much as the center of civic life which um you know it mightn't be an all bad thing it's just that it's a it's a very miserable church there's a real lack of joy, isn't there? There's, there's mm. no sort of, um, there's, there's, yeah, there's nothing joyful. There's nothing optimistic. There doesn't see, you know, doesn't seem to bring peace. Um, it's much more about punishment, it seems. Yes, exactly. Yes, it's a very punitive church that um, seems to sort of hang people and beat people. And yes, so there's a lot of violence. When he describes the congregation um, for the funeral, um, it's as if he's um, describing a sort of Bruegel or kind of, you know, Netherlandish painting. You know, people are disfigured and limping and have sores. And, you know, it's not it, it's not it's not a pretty picture. Yeah. Yes. But did you I, I, mean, I feel he writes in a very visual way. I could I could mm. see I could sort of smell. I could, you know, imagine myself yeah. at that funeral. Um I mean, I don't know, one could say, I've seen one review that said it's, you know, full of sort of medieval cliches, but I found it quite vivid, really, um, that, that this is what happens if you don't have um, the benefits of, you know, the modern age. Yes, and so, yes, I mean, the scenes are very vivid. In some ways, it felt almost like a slideshow. And I felt the the sort of vivacity of the scene setting and the plotting and the pace and all these marvellous technical things that he does slightly overshadowed the characters, which I felt never, never really took off for me. That's interesting. Were there any of the characters who who you, you did like or or not? Were they all a bit shadowy? Um, my favourite was Captain Hancock, who is, um, without giving too much away, gets into a sort of rivalry with our narrator and hero, Father Christopher Fairfax. And I liked him because he was believable, not necessarily likable, um, but he is this big bull of a man built like a minotaur who enjoys the sound of his own voice, but also gets things done, is willing to kind of, uh, you know, put himself on the line in a much quicker fashion than sort of some of the other characters who are sort of, you know, quite sort of vacillating. So, And I have a feeling he was drawn from life. He just felt he felt more three-dimensional than everyone else who possibly seemed to exist in service to the plot rather than in you know to service to being a fully rounded human being. I do agree with you. And you said something in your piece um, about the way he describes the female characters in this book as opposed to the male ones. As I don't I can't remember the phrase you used, but I think I'm going to suggest that you 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 think they're a bit one-dimensional. And I wondered how much of that was perhaps a very good writer being a little bit lazy, or whether it's actually to do with the place of women in this new dystopia, whether he was actually trying to say something deliberate there. I don't know if you've got a view on that. Yeah, I did um I did find the women um I wonder there aren't terribly many of them. Um, there's only one who's given great detail, which is Sarah Durston. I think, mm. as I said, I do feel she has just stepped out of a pre-Raphaelite painting yes. in her velvet and russet-coloured hair. Yeah. And she, you know, she, again, is very much in service to the plot, a sort of portal to what might have happened before. The um, other female characters we run into, the housekeeper and the silent 
for a time, um, daughter for a time. Yes. Um, yeah, they they do they do they do seem quite thin. Mm. Yes, I mean, have, yes, um, ha having a character who can't speak, you know, does seem quite a, does seem quite a way of uh, restricting restricting their agency. Um, but I think that's possibly true of Robert Harris's novels throughout. I um, he might even admit this himself. Maybe we, we should ask him sometime. His female characters are not as rounded as his men. Um, you know, the men are men of action. The women are, you know, kind of have, have a slightly bystandry role, which of course could be, yes, could be a comment on the time. But there would be nothing to stop someone in that time subverting those norms, however secretly, and perhaps it would have been nice if some of that agency could have gone to the women. Yes, yeah. Um, one reviewer I read said that we should perhaps approach this novel as if it's sort of 18th century little gothic, um, or perhaps 19th century gothic romance with this alluring lady of the manor and the mill owner and the conscience-stricken young priest and the final drama in the drenching rain. Again, without giving anything too much away about the ending, because a lot of things happen quite quickly. Did the ending convince you? Um, the ending reminded me of a lot of other Robert Harris endings. There is the kind of the, the couple who get caught in these sort of terrific natural forces, which you get in Pompeii. And you get the rather theatrical appearance of a character who has been mentioned throughout the novel yes. and turns out to be playing a yes. very, very big role, um, which actually reminds me not so much of any Robert Harris novel, but um, of The Wizard of Oz. Ah, um, yes, yes, that's interesting. Yep. Have it, I, before we did this interview, I had a quick flick through to remind myself of you know, one or two aspects. And reading the, the scene from The Wake does give the the ending um, some more depth because you realise that what you're being shown visually at the end, you would actually be introduced to um, hourly. Yes. Um, in that wake scene, so yes, the end, the ending, the the ending is the ending is clever. It's not just a use of natural forces to kind of bring things to an end was it convincing or was it well I've done so many hundred pages now and I've got I've got yes. deadline enough now <laughs> yes yes yeah that's a that's a really that's, that's a really tricky question I think I think there was a feeling of relief that there was an ending yeah yeah um so yes I don't know about conviction but I was certainly relieved um that we'd kind of um, brought things to a full stop because it was such a depressing place to be. I was in some ways glad to be out of there. Yes, yes, yes. There's a, there's a. I mean, I think we can say there's a sort of claustrophobia about there isn't particularly towards the end. And yes, there, there is a, and there is a sense of resolution, isn't there? Um, so I mean, that sort of works. I mean, I think one of the troubles with being a thriller writer, and, and I do think he is a thriller writer, is that. Um, you get you get kind of you know you 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 kind of find yourself rushing through it because it's written in a very pacey way, which is part of the reason it's engaging, and so you can 
miss the details like the wake. So it's interesting you've gone back to it. And and I do think sometimes, you know, there's a lot more. It's actually quite rich with ideas, isn't it? But it is also because it's quite a sort of fast plot. You can keep, you you know, you can kind of rush through it possibly. Um, but maybe that was just my experience. Yes, no, yes, no. I think yes, the ideas do can get skimmed over, as you say, because it, it is a, it is absolutely a page turner. And I think possibly because at the end we get so many switchbacks and so many reversals of what we thought to be true, there is a feeling almost of sort of car sickness. Yes, <laughs> this, yes. This has just gone. This has just gone too fast. So maybe there's maybe there's an issue of pace that maybe the maybe the pace needed to be more evenly spread through the novel because we do get some quite sort of plodding passages yes. of description yeah um maybe we needed less less of that and um more yes more more yes more tightening kind of throughout yes. the way Yes, it, I, you know, I'm just finding myself thinking, well, I was thinking it was quite interesting. It was written in 2019 and one of the um, possible explanations for the the um, apocalypse is that there had been some pandemic that, and, and I thought that was quite interesting that he was writing it as we were approaching and not knowing we were approaching that pandemic. I find myself now wondering in conversation whether it's somehow because of the timing missed the final edit. I don't know um, that, you know, because it, it I don't know whether it could have just I think it could have benefited from tightening up, as as we've said, um, somehow to even out some of the unevenness. I mean, a good dystopian novel always exposes the fragility of, of modern civilization and asks questions about our anxieties. And I suppose I'm wondering, given that it was written in 2019, we're talking about it in 2024, do you think there's a sort of long lastingness to the questions that he raises does it does it feel um does it feel current does it feel do you think does it feel relevant now is it going to still feel relevant in five years time i wonder if you've got any thoughts on that i think it certainly feels relevant now um you know this idea that progress always goes forward um where it seems with so many things at the moment um in terms of sort of you know social services and standards of living and things like that and health service that we do seem to be going backwards that we things that we took for granted do seem to be slightly cracking um so i think it is very i think it's possibly a warning for all times that you know, if you believe in things getting better and you believe in progress and you believe in social justice um you can't sit back and say you know box ticked we've done that because there will always be forces that you can identify and also unexpected ones um, that might wrong foot you. Yes. So, yeah, I, 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 I think the, the kernel, the, for all my criticism, I think the kernel of the novel is incredibly prescient mm. and, um, you know, should, should make everyone you know, quite wary of just how easy it is to slip. Yeah, yes. And I think... I think we would both agree it's a really good read. Um, you know, it's it's compelling, isn't it? Um, in spite of you know possibly un, an unevenness, it's it's a compelling read. Or at least that was my experience. Yes, it it is. It's a yes. It's a sort of it's a world you're glad to leave, but while it while it exists in the cover of the book, you do keep wanting to find out more. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's a great um, it's a you know, it's a great airport read, um, flu read. Um, you know, whenever whenever you need transporting to somewhere different, yes, um, 
you know, it it is excellent. It is probably, I don't know if you agree with me here, Sarah, it's not the greatest of Robert Harris's novels. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's probably true. Um, but he he'd always does something interesting, I think. Um, he's, you know, he's very clever, isn't he? He's, yeah. And I think it was interesting in the interview you did with him um, just over a year ago, you discussed the fact, and you've already alluded to it just now a bit earlier, that he has explored ideas of faith a lot in the last 10 years. And in my sense was in your conversation with him that he was sort of saying that was sort of not what he'd expected. Um, he's quite, you know, he'd found himself in in this area without really meaning or knowing he was going there. W- would that be a fair reflection? Yes, because I think his, he was um, initially a political reporter, and I think his interest was politics. And then he started, you know, now he says his interest is always power. And I think he has become surprised and fascinated by the power of religion. I think it's put sort of crept up on him. I think you know, maybe, maybe it's you know working at a in a study that used to be I can't remember if it was sort of the Jane Austen's uncle. There was a connection there. But he works, yes, he works in a former clergyman's study, and so yeah, it's obviously it's obviously swept over him. He does seem to be getting more fascinated by it. My caveat about that is there is a fascination with the outer manifestations of faith. He's you. Know, terribly good of you know he's good on vestments and ritual and words perhaps there needs to be more explanation of the kind of the inner life of faith because where I think where he tries to do that he gets a bit clunky mm-hmm. uh, in the second sleep we have you know we have father Christopher Fairfax and um yes his his, exp- his explanations of faith and his personal faith well credible just um just feels so leaden and so circumstantial sort of you know I was I was an orphan what else could I do as if as if everyone in the novel is you know, driven to their circumstances without choice mm. I'm wondering again going back to your earlier point perhaps this is you know again a commentary on what it's like to live in sort of pseudo medieval times where you don't have a choice about what you do. Maybe maybe that this idea that we have sort of great choice and agency and can live for personal fulfillment is a modern idea and possibly mm. our modern hubris, I don't know. Yeah, yes. No, I'd wondered exactly that because you you don't get the sense of, of Father Fairfax having any kind of living faith do you there's no there's no sense of that and and it could be either explanation that this is this is kind of the hand that he's been dealt by life or perhaps the author not quite engaging with how it might feel um to have that faith and just um tell us tell us something about the title the second sleep um because i think there's a sort of dual um meaning in there isn't there yeah um it is taken from a work that published in the early 2000s by a um historian but um from Virginia Tech um whose name I am going to get for us um Roger Roger Eckrig and he wrote a history of sleep and um, if you'd like if you'd like the title it is um at day's close a history of nighttime and he put toward the idea that in basically until industrialization and electric and gas lighting that it was perfectly normal for people to sleep for a few hours then get up and kind of you know socialize or do chores and then have what they call the second sleep and this was you know this was considered you know quite ordinary my caveat with that is 
the mentions of this are actually pretty sparse. And the historian's argument is, yeah, mentions of it are sparse because it was just so normal. Yes. So I'm slightly, I don't know whether Robert Harris adopted that idea because it felt genuinely true or adopted it because it gave gave a a nice kind of structure to his work. Obviously, the second meaning of it for the novel is that, just as we were saying, if you take your eye off the ball with sort of progress and social justice, um, you can go back very quickly. If you you know you can be you can be asleep at the wheel. Yeah. Yes. Um, the progress progress isn't linear, and I, I think um, Robert Harris brought up that same point in Pompeii, where he says at the beginning of the book. Whether 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 history is our is our memory, or whether it is a past generation's kind of projection of us, um, you know who's who's got the narrative control here? Is it the past or the present? Yes, no, I, I, mean, I thought that was quite it was quite a clever title, but you're right. Possibly he was shoehorning in a an excuse to use it. Um, So we've been discussing The Second Sleep by Robert Harris, and you can read Susan's introductory essay and some questions for discussion in The Church Times and online. And finally, Susan, I always ask people on this podcast if they can recommend something else, um, something you've read recently that you think our readers might enjoy. I am currently reading a not current book, but I think it was was brought out in the early 2000s, which is Going to Church in Medieval England by Nicholas Orme which is a really readable look at what it was to be a Christian in England or what it was to be a churchgoer in England or what it was to be a parishioner in England. And those are kind of possibly three different things. Um, And one of the things that fascinated me was I had always thought that when Augustine landed um, in the sixth century, England was a blank canvas. But Nick Zorn points out that the end of the Roman occupation by that time Constantine had converted. So there were in a few key places, like St Albans, still Christian shrines existing. So when St Augustine came over, he would have, you know, he would have found these kind of embers of the faith he wanted to bring. And I wonder if he knew that when he arrived, or was this sort of, oh brilliant, this isn't going to be as hard as I thought. Yeah, so I'm, I'm yes, I'm I'm really I'm really enjoying that because for the non-theologians among us, it is a great way of filling up, filling out, in my case, absolutely massive gaps in my knowledge. And it is both very scholarly, but also very readable. And that seems to fit incredibly well with the conversation we've just had about the second sleep. Um so thank you for that recommendation. And thank you very much, Susan. Good to talk to you. You too, Sarah. listening to this week's episode of the church times podcast you can find more news analysis comment and book reviews on our website churchtimes.co.uk if you are not yet a subscriber to the church times you can try your first 10 issues for just 10 pounds you'll get the paper delivered to your door every friday plus full access to our website and digital archive go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more